0: We usually didn't pay much attention to them. These uh, minions from the Pharisees in Jerusalem—they would always come up. They were always trying to uh, try to catch Jesus at uh, being politically incorrect to such a degree that they could use it to take him down. But this time was different. They made us a part of their attack. So all of us including even Peter just kind of stopped mid chew and listened and watched to see what was going to happen. I mean you need to understand this wasn't scripture. This was the teaching of the elders that they were saying. You know that he came up to Jesus and said, "How come your disciples don't wash their hands?" It was all, it wasn't even in the Bible to, to wash our hands before we eat, but we didn't really understand where the whole thing was going. You see, what had happened is things had gotten so crazy and moving so fast and so many people coming to Jesus at this point that we hardly had time to eat. We didn't have very much money to buy food either. But at this particular point, we finally found a moment. And so we started stuffing our face with the hummus and pita bread as much fast as we could. And then these guys show up and make it about us. And see, the thing is, we were pretty sure that we were being a problem for Jesus half the time anyway. So there was kind of some truth to this. And so we, were, we, 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 we just kind of set it aside for a moment and stopped because we really didn't understand, okay, are we supposed to wash our hands or are we not supposed to wash our hands? It, it was sort of like walking with Jesus was kind of like being a, a little child and he was the parent. You know, no matter how much he explained it, we just couldn't understand. But then Jesus said into them, and he defended us. He he called them hypocrites, he quoted Isaiah. Get him, Jesus. And then he said, He called after they left with a look on their face like Drat, we lost again. He called the crowds to him. And he said, Look, people, here's what you need to understand. It's not about what goes into a person that makes them unclean; it's what comes out of a person that makes them unclean. And Judas made a potty joke, Judas. But all of us were still kind of confused, so we asked Jesus of what he meant about that when we got into the house by ourselves. And he called us dull. Let me clear: he did not call us dumb. He called us dull, like we didn't quite get it. And the fact of the matter is, that was true. You see, we were still trying to figure out, okay, wash your hands, don't wash your hands. We are still thinking externally to the point that, uh, you know, we, didn't, we knew that that was important. You know, good hygiene, following the law. We knew all that was important. Uh, but it didn't seem to rise to the same level of the kingdom of God is near you. I remember when I first finally realized what he had meant. It was a couple years later. It was after the horrific cor- cross and Jesus' death and the, the epic resurrection. And just before that and just after that, Jesus had said, hey, I, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and he'll remind you of everything. He'll, he'll help you understand everything. And so when he sent us into Jerusalem to pray and to, to wait until uh, that, that happened after he ascended into heaven... That's what we did, and sure enough, the Holy Spirit came rushing in. We could even hear it. It was like a wind, and we were speaking in tongues we didn't know, and all of a sudden, Peter became brave and gave this great sermon, and thousands of people were coming to him, and that just kept going and going the days after that. There was just amazing, amazing things happening. And it was just a couple of days later that I suddenly realized what Jesus was talking about. What he was trying to say is, I want to start the revolution deep, deep inside of you. It's not the same thing that you think. Because you see, what he's trying to tell us is that he could give us all the information in the world. He could give all the teaching impossible. He could heal every person that came to him from Judea and Samaria and Galilee. He could knock the Romans back on their backside. He could punch old fat Herod in his gut but it wouldn't make any difference because he came not only to change the world, but to change us. You see, that is where this whole thing comes to in Mark chapter 7. We're in chapter 7 today. We've gotten out of chapter 6 finally. And... and, what we're going to see is, it's kind of an interesting exchange, but it's actually the hinge point of the whole thing. And and, it sort of of set us up, let me go back to just three quick things that we talked about way, way back in the beginning, back in the fall when we started our journey into Mark. The gospel of Jesus, the untold or seldom told story of Jesus. Not told enough anyway. Uh, and, And what we said at the beginning was that, The gospel story is Jesus' story. Jesus' uh, story is the gospel story. Therefore, Jesus is the gospel. Make sense? Secondly, what we said is, is one of the first things Jesus said was the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God is near you. That means he forgives our sins, yes. But he's about changing a lot more than just forgiving our sins. I mean, if that was all, that would be great, that'd be enough. But he was about far, far more than that. But here's the thing that uh, we also said that is the point of this story today. It is that we may know all that. We may know that something's off inside us and that things need to be changed and transformed. And even those of us who have been Christians a long, long, long time, we think, we you know, we, there's still things that he, I really need help on, God. And the reality is, is we are helpless to do that we are helpless to change that. We can clean up the outside and wash our hands. But the inside, only he can do. And the promise of this story is that he's happy and glad to do it. He loves prayers, like uh, praying, God, clean me up on the inside. That's the point of this story. And it's the hinge point. And as we'll see, it must be an important part of how it's, because of how it's placed It must be an important part of the story and what it means to live with and for Jesus and be together and be a church and all that. It must be an important, important part. So let's start with verse 1. If you've got your Bibles, you can open to Mark chapter 7. If you don't, don't worry. They'll be on the screen. Uh, And if you're new with us, we are so glad you're here. But listen to this. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, they were unwashed. That's not how you and I would hear it, especially if you're a germ freak, okay? They had not discovered microbes and germs yet. That's not what this is about. In fact, Mark needs to explain something about their Jewishness because he's writing to Romans, remember? He's writing to Gentiles. Pretty much all of us are Gentiles. Most of us are Gentiles. Listen to this in parentheses, verse 3. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Now that second wash is a different word, and it means something maybe even bigger than just washing your hands. I'll talk about that in a second. They observe many of the other traditions, such as washing the cups and the pitchers and the kettles, you know so they wash all their utensils a certain way. Verse 5, back to the story. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So, you know, is Jesus picking on the Pharisees here? Is he just kind of trying to trick them? Is he trying to catch them in something like they're trying to catch him? No, no. I really think he's trying to help them see something. He's trying to help them understand something. Because you see, where these guys were coming from was they weren't, they weren't quoting. When they say the tradition of the elders, they weren't quoting from the Old Testament because the Old Testament doesn't say you actually have to wash your hands before you eat. Regardless of what your mother told you, the Old Testament doesn't actually say that. But the elders did. And the elders being the rabbis from of old who put some stuff together in a thing called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was no less than 25% about purity laws. How to clean yourself up so you could be pure. But almost all of that had to do with outside acts. Ritual acts. And so they're, they're they're just hunkering down on that. They themselves admit, we're not talking Old Testament here. We're not talking Bible. We're talking the tradition of the elders. And, and when it says, um, when they come from the marketplace, they would often wash. What that actually could mean is they take ritual baths. You know, they're doing all this archaeological digs in Israel these days. And they're finding lots. In fact, they just found another one first century little towns and stuff from this era. And every single one of them has a ritual bath for the Jewish bath, the cleanliness thing. It, it's not, but it's not cleanliness like we think of cleanliness. It was a ritual cleansing when they came from the marketplace in case they got any uncleanness on them, they would take a bath. There's even a bath, uh, for example, in the most arid place in Israel in one of the most arid places in the world, a place called Masada. There's two of them actually because Herod had a, had a palace up there. It's on top of this mountain right next to the Dead Sea and there were these ritual baths there for this. And so they'd, they'd wash. It's almost like, you know, you know, so like I take a shower after I'm on, I've been on an airplane. That's more a germ-free thing. <laughs> These guys were doing it because it's the part of their tradition and their elders. In fact, even today, even today, Jewish people, you will find them doing this, the Orthodox Jews, not the, you know, Reformed and so forth, but the Orthodox Jews will do this. I mean, in fact, if you go to the, the uh, Wailing Wall, you know, the Western Wall, the, the wall that is part of uh, Herod's Temple on that he built uh, uh, in, in Jerusalem. You can uh, see uh, uh, the Hasidic Jews, the Orthodox Jews with the hats on. They're, they're bowing toward the wall. never ever seen that? All right. there's, a, there's actually a bathroom just to the north of that courtyard because I have been in there several times. And, and, and I don't know about the women's room because I've never been in there, but I've been in the men's room and, and there are actually uh, two sets of sinks. The one side for the Gentiles, one side for the Orthodox Jews. And the Orthodox Jews' side, I, I, I looked in there. I don't know if i was supposed to, but I looked in there. And they've got these little pictures, these little tin pictures, uh, t- uh, chained to the faucets that have just apparently the right amount of water and no towels because they're supposed to let them drip dry and so forth and so on. And so even today, that's part of the Mishnah is still in effect in that case. Aren't you glad we don't have any of those like traditions that we have to live by anymore? Or do we? What about a big one? It was just sort of labeled uh, just recently in 2015 by a journalist named James uh, Bartholomew in a national magazine. He talked about value signaling or his, his term was virtue signaling. What's virtue signaling? It's what we see all the time. Every time you turn on the news, somebody's saying, hey, I'm for that team. I'm for that religious idea. I'm for, against that religious idea. I'm against that politics, I'm for that politics, I'm so forth. People are signaling their values or their morals all the time, right? I mean, that's happening. And and the thing is, is you can virtue signal till your brains fall out, but it doesn't really change your brains. It doesn't really change what's inside. You see, that's the problem with what we would call public displays of effective value or virtue signaling. It is that it doesn't go deep enough, but it makes us feel good. That's my team. You know, what's the whole idea of value signaling? The whole idea is to say, I'm a trendsetter. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rule breaker. I'm a tradition rejecter. Only problem with that is, as soon as you put that on like Facebook or Twitter especially if your address is 1600 uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, Uh, if you're on Instagram or or wherever it is and you you value signal something out there. For the world to know you are a trendsetter, a rule breaker. If over half your your generation or even a third of your generation is already doing that, it's not really setting a new trend. It's already there. And second of all, even if you do get on that train, it doesn't change anything on the inside about who you really are. You see these public displays of affectations. What's an affectation? Well, let me give you the definition, the dictionary definition here. An affectation is a behavior, speech, or writing that is artificial and designed to impress other people. So if you came in here today and you got like 2,000 likes on your Instagram and you're feeling pretty good about yourself, I'm sorry, we are here to help, really. We're not putting you down. Just, this, is, this is a good place to be. Just don't look at anybody. Nobody will think it's you. But here's the thing. You know, what that shows us is we all have to have a moral system. We all in our hearts long for something to believe in. To say my belief system is I don't believe in a belief system is exactly right. That's a belief system. To say I don't have a moral code is a moral code. To say that, you know, I don't have any ethical uh, parameters in my life is in fact an ethical system. I don't believe in God is actually an indication of who or what you worship, what you base your life on, what you base your morals on, which again is a moral belief system. And and the reality is is that we can kind of clean things up and try really hard and and do all those things on the outside, but it doesn't really change anything. And so what Jesus does is he turns to us and says, hey, um, you might want to think that through a little bit which is exactly what he does to these Pharisees. Notice in verse 5, they pop the question, why aren't your disciples washing their hands before they eat? Which, <laughs> you know, it's one of those questions, like you see it coming, but it's sort of like, you know, watching reality TV or, or listening to like Dave Ramsey show on the radio. Some guy calls up and goes, hey, I just got a credit card and I'm thinking about buying a car with it. What do you think? And you're going, oh, ah, you're going to get creamed on national radio. Don't do that. That's exactly what these guys should have known by now. But look how Jesus, Jesus responds to them firmly and in a hard fashion, but not overly harsh, I don't think. I think he's doing the spirit of really trying to help. You'll see as as we go along. He replied, verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. In other words, he's saying, look, Scripture trumps all other traditions and ideas that human beings come up with. That includes your pastor. That includes clergy. That includes bishops and popes and the church and other things. Anything that we can come up with or interpret from the Scripture, the systems, the the systematic theologies, Scripture always is over the top of that. Doesn't mean they're all bad. Doesn't mean they're all wrong. It just means it's over the top of that. And here's what Isaiah says. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Verse nine. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said... Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you, that's an emphatic you now. And every time he says you for the next two verses up to verse 13, three verses, he's he's saying you, but you have that, you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban that is devoted to God. Thank you, Mark, for that definition. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. Okay, let's start back up there with that quote uh, from Isaiah, actually, before that, when he says, you hypocrites. The word hypocrites uh, used to mean, before this time, a number of years ago, it meant play actor, somebody in one of the Greek tragedies or the Greek comedies, one of the plays, okay? Because they were playing. It was uh, hypocritic, okay, is, is what it means. And, and it came by this time to mean a pretender. You guys are a bunch of pretenders, basically is what he's calling them. And and, and what he's saying that for is because you're pretending on the outside with your traditions to be a certain way, but inside, it's still messed up. Inside, it's not; it hasn't been changed, and so you're a pretender. And the second thing is, we need to kind of call out this word prophesied. When he says that, he's not saying that Isaiah prophesied that these guys would show up, what he's saying is, is that Isaiah preached. You see, we look at Old Testament prophecy, and we're so hooked on end times stuff and stuff like that that we think that every time a prophet opened their mouth, it was about the end times and when Jesus is coming back, and that's just not the case. It also has this element of preaching or this, this thus saith the Lord, this proclamation, and he's saying Isaiah proclaimed that there would be people like you and that there were people like them in that, that case. And there are two big ideas in his quote from uh, Isaiah that uh, he brings up here, Isaiah 29. He says, first of all, you're only giving lip service to God and nothing's changed for you. And second of all, uh, you you need to understand that your traditions are being elevated by you over the commands of God, so you're nullifying the very commands of God. So what, what he's saying to them is something that I think we all need to hear from time to time. And that as human beings, we will make anything the main thing except the main thing. We will make anyone the main one to be worshipped except the one whose It's just our way. It's just the tendency of what happens to fallen human beings. And what is that? If you define it by the word that it really is, that is flat out rebellion. That's what it is. It's rebelling against God by doing that, by saying, no, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set this priority over your priority and, and, and so forth and so on. And, and the, here, here, here's how that works out. The problem with all that is this. With fallen human nature, it, uh, the problem with fallen human nature is that it always tends to veer toward rebellion. That's our, that's our tendency. And Jesus gives a perfect example of it right here. He talks about Corbin. uh, Now, we need to be clear. We have a college in this state that's a really good college called Corbin. Some of you may have been there. It simply means what the word really means, and that is devoted to God. That's a good thing. But these guys had taken it and applied it to a bad process. And here's how they did it. They wanted to get as much money as they could. They wanted to be able to keep their property, and they wanted people to give them their property and their so forth and so on. So what they did is they came up with this idea from the Old Testament, but they misinterpreted it and twisted it to say, if you give to us your money or your uh, property, then you don't have to do any of the other stuff that you would have done with that money. For example, keeping the Ten Commandments. For example, keeping the sixth of the top ten, the Ten Commandments, where it says, honor your father and mother, and you will have a long life. You don't have to do that. then. You can go to mom and dad and say, mom, dad, sorry, I had all this money. I was going to take care of you in your old age. And I know you don't have a house to live on. I know you got a bad way. I know. But I gave all my money to God. And I can't get it back from God. And so these guys, they would actually do that too. They They would take all their money, stick it into their ministry and say, ah, yes, I'm living off it, but I'm really living off it for God. And so there was an act of rebelling against God's command to take care of their parents. He's giving a perfect example of what that means and, and how that works. You see, we still do that today. We still rebel today. You see, the problem with uh, value signaling or uh, virtue signaling or, or um, you know, deciding, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Uh, I think I know better than God. I'm, I'm going to kind of come up with my own traditions, my own system, my own this, my own that. The problem with that is, even if you're successful, it only cleans up a certain part, right? Even if you, if you pull it off, you're still goofed up on the inside. You still can only, human beings can only change so much, even if they try really, really hard. And so, in this um, Resilient Christians course that we just kind of finished up the class part of it just now. It's still going on as people are kind of gathering together in, in these micro groups that we started and, and I'm excited to see what happens because it was a great, great uh, course and some people are into this and they're, they're doing amazing, wonderful things just for each other and being together and, and going through uh, the scripture or uh, devotional life together. And one of the people that we recommended and we looked at uh, was a person who I think has written the uh, the best book of the early 20th century on the inner life of anybody. And his his name's Dallas Willard. I've referenced him before. Uh, And The Renovation of the Heart is the book. And he says this about the rebellion that that happens to us. Today, you will hear many presumably learned people say that there is no such thing as human nature. Like there's no nature that's kind of true about us, uh, left to ourselves. Or that human beings do not have a nature supposedly learned people. It then becomes a part of the unchecked political moral rage against identity that characterizes modern life. Did you ever think of it that way? A lot of people are raging against their identity. Some of us rage against our identity. I want to be somebody else. I want to be somewhere else. I want to be something else. This is the rage predicated upon the idea that identity restricts freedom. I am a human being, if, if I am a human being, as opposed to, say, a Brussels sprout or a squirrel, that places a restriction upon what I can do, what I ought to do, and what should be done to me. If you're a Brussels sprout, you should be eaten. I know some people that have eaten squirrel, but that's gross because they're rodents. <laughs> but a human being should not be any of those things. But the thing is, is that, what Willard is saying is, is throw off all the traditions, throw off all the restrictions of our identity, the God-given identity in the image of God that he has placed in us as the creator God who has created you and me and made us just as he knew was perfect. And we're trying to throw that off. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have ambition. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do as much as we can and what God is gifting to us and use our gifts to the full and our resources to the full. Of course we do that because that's honoring God but to reject what God has put us in, to reject the the person he's called us to be. That's rebellion. And it's not real freedom by saying, okay, I'm going to throw off God's shackles and I'm going to go over here. That's not freedom. That's actually hell. So that's why Jesus, when he comes to telling the crowds the solution to this situation, because they were still confused. And as we're going to see, the disciples were really confused, trying to act really wise, but... Did you know what he said, John? No, I don't know what he said. What's this unclean? Were we supposed to wash our hands? I don't know, right? They're still struggling. But Jesus, in a very merciful fashion, if a strong fashion, again, is trying to make a central point to the gospel and why he came. Look at verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me. Again, Mark says this over and over again. Jesus makes it clear that faith and understanding of God begins with listening and and, uh, hearing him, really hearing him. So he's saying, take a chill pill, or as the Old Testament says, be still and know I'm God, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of the person that defiles them. So here's why I think this is really merciful. He's telling us something that we don't always let ourselves be aware of. I mean, it rises up. You can't keep it down, but that, that it's not, you know, what you, what you take in. It, that's now actually what makes you holy or unholy. Like what you eat or even... You know, some of the vices that we have. Not saying they're good things, particularly when they get a hold of us and we can't get rid of them. Addictions and that sort of thing. But I'm saying, he's saying it doesn't actually ch- go to your heart and, and transform your heart. That That's not what defiles you. It's, it's what, what can actually touch your heart. That's what defiles you. And, and he's talking about this defilement. The word defilement, by the way, means common or... Um, unclean Isn't that, that's not what makes us dirty on the inside that's not what messes up the interior, now this really helps me out I don't know about you, but it helps me out when he talks about the matters of the heart, because quite frankly um, I got a hold of a shepherd's pie, a vegan shepherd's pie in a pub in Oxford, England about a year and a half ago, and it seriously defiled uh, my interior life for a lo- about two weeks <laughs> is, that, is that too TMI, too much, okay, but anyway just a personal problem I want to share with you. But 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 he's saying, listen to me, just a minute. It's the resistance. Look for the resistance. Have you noticed how people are using the word resistance now? And this is not a political statement. Please help please understand me. People are using it on all sides of the political aisle. I'm gonna resist this, I'm gonna resist that. I mean, what is resistance? It's rebellion if it has to do with God. Right? So the reality is it matters of the heart are, are uh, just too much for us to choose. I mean, we, we give way too much credit to choosing. You know, if I, if I say, I'm going to be a better man, I'm going to be a better person, I'm going to be a better person, I'm going to be a better person. You're not going to be, you know, you know, even if you are successful about making yourself a better person on the inside, without God's help, the inside doesn't change because there's stuff in there you don't even know needs to be changed, right? And you still wind up being a mess. That's the problem. The problem with simply choosing to be a better person is that even if you are successful at cleaning up yourself uh, uh, on the outside, the inside is still a mess. And there's stuff in there that you can't reach and I can't reach. So Jesus is saying, your choices just aren't strong enough. We give way too much credit to choice nowadays, don't we? That somehow I can choose the moral way? I can choose a moral? That's why people are realizing, hey, that didn't work. I'm going to try a new moral system next year, and next year, and next year. I mean, no wonder we're so schizophrenic nowadays. We being the generic we in our culture. And, and, and the reason is, is because only the one who can go where no man has gone before, Jesus, can really change to the core what's going on in our hearts that's the reality. Now, I know what, what happens in some of our minds. It's like, oh, don't say that, Dwayne. don't say that, because my husband, my wife, they've promised to be better. My kids have promised to be better. My friends, my boss, they promised to be better. And I know what happens when they don't make those promises and when they're not trying really hard to be better people because it's just a pain in the Djibouti, right? I mean, you struggle. But here's the thing. If it's, all, if it's all a facade, why would you want that? Because here's the deal. You and I can take it on ourselves to be changed and transform ourselves. And to some degree, because we've all got the image of God, even secular people who reject God have the image of God in them. So they can, we'll see at the end of this, they're still capable of beautiful things and wonderful things and so forth. But to sustain genuine change from the inside out, it's just not possible. So you wind up in one of two places. Over time, you wind up in hypocrisy land like these Pharisees or you wind up just giving up. And man, we've got a lot of people giving up today, don't we? On marriages, on families, on you know, this job, on church, and religions, on this, on that. We've got a lot of people giving up because they've kind of come to the end of it and going, you know what? That didn't work. You see, that's why as I read the New Testament, I see so much excitement jumping off the page in fact, when he kind of gets down to f- explaining the hub of the whole thing, the Apostle Paul in the second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 3, he almost jumps out of the Bible with his excitement. Because he's been building up to this and building up to this. And I'm only going to read you the final statement. Because you should really go back and read chapter 3 of Second Corinthians. But here's what he says. But we all with unveiled faces beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord. In other words, just like Jesus, the Spirit. Now the Spirit is transforming us day by day, by day. The NIV makes it even clearer that it's day by day. It's a lifetime adventure. It's a lifetime journey. It's not about I sit and worry, and say, "Oh, you know, I wonder what else I got in there." No, Jesus promises if we stick with Him and head in His uh, in His. Um, way remember he said I'm the way the truth and the life he said the way you live my way I'll give you the life you don't have to be wondering oh is he going to give me a life if I'm living that way day by day I don't have to wonder what the will of God is because if I'm walking with him day by day that is the will of God so what he's saying is is that if that happens you can be assured that I'm going to transform you from the inside out and that crud that's got stuck way down there we're going to get rid of it we're going to change it we're going to make it all clean We're going to to transform, and it's going to be possible for you to see me again. It's going to be possible for you to understand what I'm telling you through my word again. It's going to be possible for you to unburden yourself from those things that keep dogging you, those temptations and struggles. It doesn't mean you won't have some of them. It just means you're going to get them in their place, and he's going to transform it so they don't have a hold on your inner life, and therefore they don't have a hold on you anymore which is where he goes with his disciples after they go in the house. Because see, they're still trying to struggle a little bit with this illustration. So in verse 17, after he had left the crowds and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the, this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go... Into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all the foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For it is from within, out of a person's heart. If you're circling, circle a person's heart. That's the point of this whole thing. That evil thoughts come. Case that's first. Hang on to that. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly all these evils come from the inside and defile a person does it sound kind of a drop a drop for Jesus to say to his disciples hey you're dull it's better than you got no faith but really you, you can understand that they're confusion right I mean honestly I'm not going to ask for a show of hands but when I first read this, I, I, I didn't really realize it was even a parable, okay? It says right here, it was a parable, verse 17. And, and, and so it's, it's like, oh, okay. And, and it, it's sort of like, you know, uh, he's not telling them you're hopeless. He's just saying, you still don't have your senses trained to get what I'm saying to you. You see, today we take God's standards like these Pharisees, and we tend to make them into ideologies, ideologies of our team, ideologies of this, ideologies of that. But the problem with that is it kind of takes God down to our level, and in doing so, it's an act of rebellion, really. Rather than saying, Jesus, what do you want to say to me today about this? Have I missed anything about this? Is there something in my heart that I'm not seeing? I mean, Jeremiah himself, you know, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, he had that famous statement, the heart is deceitful beyond anything else. Remember that? Remember that? Who can, Who where's the cure? That's the part we usually quote, but we don't quote the next line, which, but the Lord searches the heart. That's what Jesus is saying is, if you just let me, I can search the heart. You can try to do your ideologies and stuff by DIY. You can do your, do it yourself, but it's always gonna wind up in the same place. So Jesus, instead of this endless cycle and cycle and cycle and cycle, Jesus has an answer. And this is the big point that Jesus is trying to get to. Jesus' answer for all of these problems we're talking about and more is his loving renovation of your heart and mine to start on the inside. That's why when he's going to do a renewal, he's going to do a revival, when he's going to change a mass amount of people like he did in the first century in Acts chapter 1, like he's done in America in the 50s, like he's done in America in the 1750s, and what he's done in the 1800s, and he's done again and again. He always starts with the people that are following him. The people that are a part of his family, and transforms us, and transforms and changes our hearts to the point we can actually see what he's up to and what he's doing. Because we just can't do the heart work. Have you ever tried? Anybody ever tried? How'd that work out? And we've all tried. You, we just don't have that power. That's why we need his help. And if we don't listen and, and, and accept that help, we are cutting ourselves off from the very gift of God. One of Jesus' greatest gifts that he came to bring us. I would say it's right up there with the forgiveness of your sins because it's cleaning up the damage from sin over your lifetime and getting you ready for eternity with him. And your family's gonna be very pleased that he is. And your church and your, so forth and so on. That's what he Is all about is transforming us from the inside out, not just some fake exterior paint job, but of clean up from the inside out. I want to tell you a story from the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament kind of gives all these inklings, all these, all these, um, expectations that when Jesus comes, this is what he's going to be about. He's going to be about the heart. And one of those places uh, where it does this is in First uh, Samuel chapter 16. And in First Samuel chapter 16, Samuel is the judge and the prophets. You ever read the book of Judges? You should do it with the lights on because it is creepy, creepy, gross, gross, okay? And it was what happens when, as it says over and over again on Judges, every person did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? In other words, everybody chose their own morality, their own moral standards, rejecting God and saying, I can do this by myself. And it devolved to the point where it was just a mess. And so Samuel is the prophet and judge. He's sort of the bridge between judges and the kings and the prophets. And and so Samuel is is the lone man of God in his region, in his day. And, and uh, he uh, was the one that God touched when Israel rose up and said, we want a king, we want a king. And God says, okay, Samuel, give him a king. But here's the deal. He's got to keep to my word. He's got to keep to my commandments. He's got to listen to me. And if he doesn't, things are not going to go well for anybody, including him. So Samuel goes out to find a king and it becomes obvious that there's this tall, dark, handsome guy who uh, is uh, living up in Gilgal and, and he's, a, he's a, you know, just a, really good-looking guy, heads above everybody else, it says, and pretty smart. I mean, he's not a genius, but I mean, he's pretty smart. And, and so he, he anoints him king, and sure enough, Saul cleans things up, takes down some of the high places, and he, he kind of, he's doing a pretty good job. And then into it a few years, somehow there's something in his heart that tells him, you know what, there's another way to do this. So he starts doing stuff thinking that he's fooling God, thinking that he's doing God's thing, but in a way that he likes. Like, for example, he starts taking, um, when they they were going out and conquer somebody, instead of, um, you know, leaving or killing all the animals, instead of leaving the treasure that's there, he would take it. And what he did was exactly what these Pharisees were doing. He would take it and he would say, well, it's for God. Because we're going to use the cows, we're going to sacrifice those. Of course, we're going to eat them after that. But we're going to sacrifice those uh, on the altar so it's for God. And we're going to take all the riches and all the gold and so forth and so on. And we're going to put it in the king's house. And the king is ordained by God, so it must be God's thing. So it's still God. And I happen to be the king. And Samuel comes to them and says, hey, you just, God is done with you. You've just done the, you know, Saul is freaking out and so forth and so on. Well, in the midst of this, God says, okay, yeah, we need a new king. So Samuel, we kind of made a misfire in this first one. He seemed to have a whole heart for me, but he only had a half heart for me. God knew it, but he let it play out. Part of his merciful thing, he lets it happen. But here's, here's what, what God told Samuel, you know, because Samuel was depressed. Quit being depressed, get up, go to Bethlehem. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, and he gets led to the house of Jesse. Jesse's got seven sons that that's, uh, Samuel knows about. And so the first one, he says, hey, bring me your sons because uh, I've got a mission here. And they already know he's brought a sacrifice with him. So they know, hey, this is something, uh, something. I think he's going to make a king. So they trot Eliab, tall, dark, handsome, really good guy in front of him. And God says, no, not him. Samuel says, really? You, he's, nope, not him. Then the next one, the next one, the next one. And then he comes to the seventh son. And that's all the sons that Samuel sees. And here's what God says. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. What? The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He sees all the way into there. So Samuel says, "Uh, okay, I got a problem here. Are you sure this is all your sons? And Jesse says, well, there's the runt. I mean, you know, the little guy, he's out with the sheep right now. So what's he, what's he doing out there? Well, he's watching over our sheep, you know, and he doesn't amount to much, red hair, kind of ruddy face. He, uh, he uh, uh, Just a, a, a little guy. I mean, he killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands the other day, but nothing much more than that. And uh, Samuel says, bring him in. Really? Yeah, bring him in. And as soon as he walked in the room, he says, okay, that one. And that was King David. Because God saw through what everybody else was, was seeing. And it wasn't that these other brothers were, you know, bad. But they just weren't all there, as you see later in the story. And, 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 and they were a little bit more about preening and other things and so forth. And you see, that's what Jesus is up to in this story. What's interesting is this is the longest story or the longest argument, the longest set of teaching in the entire book of Mark. Because remember, we said everything's concise in the book of Mark. This is 23 verses. This is the longest one. So it must have some importance that God says, I can help you on the interior stuff. Stop trying to do it yourself. Doesn't mean we don't give ourselves all to God. Doesn't mean we don't wake up in the morning and say, God, help me to live for you today. It doesn't mean we say, you know what, I want to live a holy life, so I'm turning away from that. I'm turning this way. But it's about God giving you the power to do it by changing your heart from the inside out. That's what it does. And it's about that list of things that Jesus says at the end to the disciples all those sins and wrongdoings and problems. But did you notice it starts with the evil thoughts? What he's saying is, it starts with the evil thoughts, but the heart dictates the thoughts. And you are helpless to completely clean out your heart and change your heart. But I can. I can do it in an instant. And I can help you keep that that way and help it grow in its change over a lifetime. That's the promise. That's why this is such a big deal. And what it also says is how valuable you and I and our church family and the church family down the street and all the people that don't know him yet, all in in Happy Valley and the surrounding communities. It says how significant and important we are to God. Let me quote again from uh, Dallas Willard. Again, the most brilliant philosopher, I think, of our time, uh, even though he taught at USC. Here we go. And he's a Christian. Okay, here we go. If we were insignificant, our ruin would not be horrifying. G.K. Chesterton somewhere says that the hardest thing to accept in the Christian religion is the great value it places upon the individual soul. Still older Christian writers used to say that God has hidden the majesty of the human soul from us to prevent our being ruined by vanity. This explains why, even in its ruined condition, a human being is regarded by God as something immensely worth saving. Sin does not make it worthless, that is the human being, but only lost. In its lostness, it is still capable of great strength, dignity, and heartbreaking beauty and goodness, enough so to hide from the unenlightened, those who aren't don't see, those whose hearts have not been changed, they can't see it, from the unenlightened, those who do not wish to understand the horror, it has come and is becoming. Can't even see. That's what we see around. So part of that, having your eyes open, is seeing that and recognizing that. And that's why Jesus knocks on our hearts. New Christians, longtime Christians, pre-Christians, knocks, knocks, knocks on our heart's door. As soon as we open the door, he said, hey, this is gonna freak you out, but I'm telling you what. There's some stuff you really need to get straight because you're you're missing a lot of stuff. And when I show you what it is. It's horrible, and I don't want you to be living in horrible. But don't worry, I've got this. I can help you change that from the inside out. It makes another prayer of David when he grew up and became king and finally realized that he had some rottenness inside, some serious rottenness. He prayed a prayer that has a famous quote about our hearts in it. And it might be a good prayer for you and I to pray. Oh no, Let me change that. It's a good prayer for you and I to pray today and consistently. Here's what it is. I'm going to call the band out here. Let me read this to you. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. That's the prayer of a transforming Christian's life. That's the prayer of a resilient Christian that this stuff doesn't get them down, doesn't pull them off the path, but that even when temptations come or even when they give in to it, they're back on it. And Jesus said, you're free, you're free, you're free. You don't have to go there, you're free. And I am walking with you, I, my spirit is your friend. Create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let's pray that together right now. And if, as I read it, if that's your prayer today, first of all, take it with you and pray it again when you do your devotional time with God. But also, if this is your prayer right now, just say, yes, God, in your own heart, in your own mind, say, yes, God, that's what I want, and join the prayer that will go to him, all of us together, as we pray, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Lord, we pray that you would do that, create a clean heart in us, as people, as individuals, as As a church, because sometimes you talk in your word about the heart being a singular thing for all of us. And in the hearts of people around us that maybe don't see the horror of what's really going on. Be merciful to them like you were to the Pharisees and the crowds and the disciples and to us. Open their eyes in a gracious way, but the clear and firm way that only you can. And we're going to trust you to do that. We're going to trust you to do that for each and every one of us. Thank you for making this the center of what forgiving our sins was all about. I mean, and coming, even if it was just forgiving our sins, it would be worth being a part of what you are. But this is amazing. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for that. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for coming for us and for coming for our hearts because they were that valuable to you. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.